This is Pastor Mike from Jordan Lutheran Church, and you're about to hear one of our Sunday morning messages. At Jordan, we're passionate about learning from the Bible and pray that this message makes an impact in your life. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So as we begin this morning, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands because this could be embarrassing. It will be because it's going to be Bible related and you don't want to probably admit it. How many of you get overwhelmed when you get to the 38th book in the Old Testament after reading Old Testament book after book after book after book after book since January? Again, you don't have to tell me, but I'm just assuming that somewhere around the 38th book, that being Zechariah, it's so easy to get wrapped up in things like this. How do you pronounce that? When did that take place? So are we talking about Israel or Judah? And who's Ephraim? And I don't even actually recall the difference between Israel and Judah. So, Pastor, as much as that's great that you told me who it is, I still don't really know the difference, but thanks. So here we are. You're kind of an Old Testament overload. If there was an Old Testament overload, you're achieving it here. Some of you with great excitement are going, Malachi. Then Matthew, you're ready. I know, two weeks, we're going to make our way there. But like a crowd singing a familiar chorus, you guys ever done that? You gather and you start singing a song that everybody knows the first verse. It's like Christmas caroling. You sing the first verse. Man, the chorus. You hear voices you didn't even hear on the first verse, and then you turn that awkward corner. The second verse. And everybody just smiles really big and realizes the shut-in that we're visiting, realizes none of us are singing. We've learned. We make sure there's always song sheets. So if somebody's like, oh, if you have, we have to memorize, we're never going caroling with you. No, you bet. We have the song sheets for you. But you get the idea. You, you got it until you don't. And when you don't, or at least when you're caroling, it's real hard to fake it. You know, you can do the watermelon thing if you're like at a distance from people, but singing watermelon when you're 10 feet away caroling, they know you're caroling the word watermelon. They're on to you. So what do we do when we don't have familiarity with the Bible? See, at this point, you've probably gotten to a place where you realize most of your education, most of us were all educated uh, in, in this beautiful place called the United States of America, which means, by and large, you learned about European history from the 1600s forward, and you learned a lot about our own nation, which started a few hundred years ago, which leaves you with a really, really big gaping hole of anything called the Middle East outside of quick glancing blows about maybe a little in Asia, a few little things, and maybe you took one or two courses, and maybe it was just one or two afternoons. So here we are, 38 books in, and we've continued to talk to you about places that you have very little public educational background on where is Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Capernaum, and other places, and certainly where is Persia, Asia Minor, who is Ephraim, Judah, Babylon. I, I don't know any of these things. I just know that, Pastor, you say them, and since you say them, I'm now comfortable, but I have no idea where they are. This is a challenge to where we are when we go to read the Bible. So rather than gloss over that this is just another prophet, which is one way you could go. You could sit there and say, there were 12 minor prophets, right? And you're sitting there going, 
we're on number 11. Some of you are going, thanks for telling me what number one. We didn't know. We would have had to count back from Malachi and realize. Well, you're on the 11th as you sit here. So as you look at Zechariah, you just have this potential. I'm not saying you are, but a potential to be overwhelmed and to go, can't we just get to the stuff I know? The problem with jumping to the stuff you know is the stuff you need to know is the stuff you don't know. Somewhere around the age of 25, most people learn this lesson. Here it is in a nutshell. There's a lot of stuff I don't know. You didn't know that at 13. You certainly didn't know it at 16. You most certainly don't know it at 21. But somewhere around 25, you've learned enough in life that you realize there's whole vast libraries that I have absolutely zero understanding of, and that's okay, because I have a lifetime to what? To learn. Most of you desperately wanted to graduate high school or college or whatever institution you went to, uh, and then you graduated and you realized that the rest of your life you're actually going to keep what? You're actually going to keep learning, and they just won't give you a diploma, and no one's going to like send you cards and gifts and greetings and eat cake with you. You did it. It's Friday. Way to go. Here's cake. And people sending you gift cards because that's what we do now at all these things. They don't do that. Instead, your boss goes, yeah, also I'm going to need you to come in Saturday, and that'd be great. You're like, so no cake and no cards? No, just I need you in on Saturday too. Um, and if you'd come at 7 because I need you to open. You're like, oh, okay, this isn't exactly the same as when I graduated. And everyone was real, real excited about all the stuff that I didn't actually know. But you were learning to be a student. And that's really what reading the Bible is doing for us. We're learning to be students of God's Word. So there's a lot of the Old Testament that if I were to quiz you on it, you'd go, please don't. That's okay. But we're going to jump in Zechariah 9, which was our reading that you heard echoed in Matthew 21. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. This is in the latter half of Zechariah. The first several chapters dealt with eight visions uh, where Zechariah was talking about, hey, I know that life isn't perfect. Even though you've returned from exile, even though you're rebuilding, you want to know that God's got you. And over eight visions, he does that. And then you get these continued pictures and stories of what God's going to be doing. And this is just one of them. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Now, why are they worried? I went in a little bit on depth of this in Bible class just before our service this morning, and they see Darius, that person who had told them they could go back and they could rebuild and do these other things. They're, they're pretty excited. So you had Cyrus, so you could go back, and you got all these things, and Darius is there, and they're going, wow, we have finally a nation who's comfortable with us, and they're thinking, this is a good guy. This might be someone who lets us do all the stuff we dreamed we could ever do. And then Zachariah's got to write to them and make sure they realize, hey, <laughs> this, this guy Darius, he's not your king but there's one who's coming. There's one who's coming, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Now, for some of you sit there going, hmm, a donkey. Now, a couple of you, you've got your, your kind of King David mind, and you're going, oh, the donkey, that's a sign of King David's house. Okay, so we've got these pieces that are pulling together. This is the king that's to come. You bet. This is the king who is to come. So this isn't the one that they've got sitting in front of them. The triumphal entry that we read as our gospel text today was to let you know, that's right, Zechariah 9 is telling you about Jesus coming into Jerusalem. That's the connection. But in the year 520 B.C., 518 B.C., when it's written, are they thinking Jerusalem and Jesus? No. 
No one wants to wait 518 years for something to happen. If I promised you all a new car today, most of you would be what? Come on. <laughs> Welcome to 2019. Isn't this great? Our first thing, skepticism. All right, great. Okay, so here's the reason why you should have been skeptical. The next thing I tell you is I'll give it to you in 518 years. You all are like, All right. Yeah, like, I don't know what to do with that. So what do you do? Nothing. So this is the challenge, though. They don't know how long it's off, and they thought Darius could be the one, so they want to know, God, what do you have for me? Get ready. It's a real modern question. They want to know, God, what do you have for me today? <laughs> it's a really terrible reference, but hopefully uh, some of you find it funny. Any Steve Martin people? All right, so we'll see if this goes for a couple of years. So there was a movie, somewhat humorous title. The movie was called The Jerk. So in it, Steve Martin is just not socially real good, and he goes to have dinner, and the waiter comes over and asks him if he'd like some wine. Uh, and he shares the wine list with him, and he names all these things. I've got this from like the 1800s and this from the 17th. And Steve Martin goes, what are you doing? Can't we have some now wine? He didn't realize that maybe it was actually good to have this aged wine. He wanted stuff that was made now. Welcome to Christians today. We don't want aged stuff. We don't want God. Don't wait for it, God. We want some now stuff. Crazy thing is 500 years have happened. Jesus has been born. You have 2,000 years of watching what God's doing. And most of us, one of the things that we struggle with is saying, God, I just want you to fix it Today. And by fix it today, I actually want to know that you started it last night and it's actually done and it's resolved. And what I find out 10 minutes from now is it's good. They've already thanked me. The card's waiting for me and the cake and ice cream will be at my house when I get home and it's a surprise party. Thank you so much, God, for setting that up. But that is not the picture that we actually see. The picture that we see is quite different. Moving from verse 9, verse 11 and 12 get you this, this growth where it goes from Jesus coming in on a donkey then how is it that they're going to see themselves be rebuilt? That is, speaking to the people in 518 B.C., assuring them that God hasn't forgotten them. He says, because of the blood of my covenant. And now you're back into glossed over mode with the Old Testament going, all right, now we're back to blood and covenants and priests and other things. And do I have to remember from Exodus and Leviticus exactly what I'm supposed to use or not use? Is it, is it a dove? Is it an animal? What type of animal? Is it a grain offering? I, I, I can't remember all the offerings. Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now, we're going to unpack a little about what this is, but think about a pit. You're all right in a pit as long as it has what in it? Water. This is why in some places in the country, you guys played in them. You know what we call them? Quarries. They got filled in with water, and they're huge watering holes. We had one like 30 minutes from my house growing up, and it was, I don't even know. Someone, I mean, they 150 feet deep, 180, I mean, just... It didn't matter. It just, I mean, it went down because they dug that thing out and they'd rocked out all the quarry and they filled it in and they turned it into a swimming hole. And it was great. But that's not the pit that you and I are in. The pit that's described not only of you and I and also the people is a waterless pit. Now, if you go looking up a pit wall and it's got nothing for 180 feet, and some of you are like, well, I'm a good free climber. I'm assuming, I mean, I know most of you, so I don't know if we have a lot of free climbers here. I'm assuming not, but there may be a couple, or at least you'd try, which is the trouble. We try to get out of things we shouldn't get out of on our own. 
But God says he'll get you out of the pit. He continues and says, I will set the prisoners free from the water and spit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. See, there's an inverse here in Zechariah. You've got prisoners are set free from the waterless hope, this waterless pit, the prisoners who were there, and now you're a prisoner of hope. That sounds kind of weird. Most of us don't think that being a prisoner is all that good a thing, unless what you're trapped in is goodness. Remember the last time you were trapped in a hug by your grandfather or grandmother? And you just laughed and you giggled. It could have been 20 years ago. It could have been yesterday. But you can remember that warm embrace. And it doesn't have to be your grandparents, but someone in your family that hugged you. And then the moment they let go, you looked up at them and you said, again. And they grabbed you and they held on tight and they squeezed. And then you played the game until what? The adult got exasperated and was like, I've been hugging you for at least 45 seconds. This is ri-. It's funny how adults are, right? And we say kids have short attention spans. Sometimes it's, it's us who are like, man, I can't do this that long. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. But blood covenants isn't language that you and I regularly use. It's just not. So when we get in Zechariah, this language of blood covenant, we've got to unpack Zechariah's blood covenant language today to help us move forward. So what is a blood covenant? As Zechariah writes, the temple's being rebuilt. So if recall with the temple being rebuilt, the sacrificial system is what? It's going to re-engage and it's going to be set there because this was the way they could clear their name before God. So trust me, Zechariah talking about blood covenants, it is already on their minds and on their hearts, and it's on their hands. And I don't mean blood's on their hands. I mean, they're building this temple and engaged going, finally, we're going to get to set things right. And the prophet's trying to help them understand what's actually happening. Now, you may recall, you probably don't remember the chapter and verse, but in Genesis 3.21, the first animal sacrifice takes place. Adam and Eve fall into sin, and God does what? He makes them clothes, and he makes it out of animal skin. Now, it's not written in there that God killed the animal, but the last time I checked where animal skins came from, it's not good on the animal. You see, the sin had to get covered. Someone died. In this case, an animal died so that Adam and Eve could be covered. And all they thought was, who told you you were naked, God asked. And they said, well, you know, we just became aware. Now they've got this, God's already starting there in Genesis 3 to prepare a way for them. And God had all this figured out. Now, if you want to turn, I'm going to read quite a bit from Hebrews 9. And I'll give it to you. I'm not going to display it all on the screen, but if you want to follow along, turn to Hebrews 9. And I'm just going to read. I'm not displaying it, but if you want to follow along, I'm in Hebrews 9, 18 to 20. And why we're going there is Hebrews gives you this awesome picture of the Old Testament and New Testament and why it's actually not two stories, but one. So many times we think that, well, new is better and we don't need the old. I'm hoping that as you've journeyed with us, you realize you don't know how good the New Testament is unless you've read the old. When you read the old, you realize that God has been planning what he did in Christ from the beginning of time. He set this out. When the heavens were created, he goes, I have a plan. You don't get that without the Old Testament. Trust me, you get Jesus, you get forgiveness. I don't disagree, but you start to understand the depth of what God's up to. Hebrews 9, verse, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, 18 to 20. Now, in this second reading that we read this morning, it talks about the Mosaic Covenant 
And the Mosaic Covenant uh, is actually coming out of Exodus 19 to 24, five chapters. And then that whole covenant that's given to Moses is sealed in blood in Exodus chapter 24. So here's what Hebrews says about that. Chapter 9, verse 18 to 20. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. See, that's the real cost for rebellion. Now, in church, we like things nice and clean, really clean. We just do. We like to keep things clean and straight and organized. Now, imagine the picture of in worship, you getting what on you? Blood. And it being strewn over the, the tent and the people in other places. You think it's hard to get people to come to church now. Woo. And we wouldn't be like the snake charm in church. We'd be the blood throwing church. <clears throat> but what God actually promises isn't that far away. You see, but when you hear it that way, it, it resonates in an odd way with you because you're not comfortable with blood language. Uh, we, we just don't live that way. So I'm going to jump you forward two verses. Hebrews 9.22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, when they say almost everything, there are a few things. There's grain offerings and others that you can offer and set forward. So when you say, oh, so what are the exceptions? Well, some of the grain offerings were the exceptions. But everything else, you got forgiveness requires something to die. But we don't like talking about death in church. We only want to talk about life. So the problem is we focus on the New Testament and we forget that the Old Testament tells us why it is that we actually have died. Jesus brings it up. Don't worry. He's, he's filled with reminding us and pointing us back. But Exodus 24, when the temple is actually consecrated in the altar and the sealed covenant that God made is sealed in blood. So it's rebellion, rebellion against God and what he sealed that gets us into trouble. So Jesus Christ then in Hebrews, what you get unpacked is Jesus is the greater system, the sacrificial system that they're real keen on getting back up. I mean, real keen. Like we are just years away. And remember, it's been decades. The temple is destroyed in 587, and right now we're living in about 518. Now you can do the rough math right there, but 60 years of no temple. Now, some of them have been deported longer, because remember, 605, some are already deported. So, I mean, some have been gone from the temple, but like literally it was gone off the face of the earth. And they're very concerned about this. And finally, they're getting there, and then you get Zechariah saying, hey, there's something bigger than the temple. And they got the people going, what do you mean bigger than the temple? There's nothing bigger than the temple. Well, that's what the writer of Hebrews does for us. I'm going to pick you back up, and I'm jumping you back in the text of verse 11, still in Hebrews 9, but jumping you back to verse 11. And it's telling you the role Jesus plays. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. What's he saying? It's not about building the temple of Zerubbabel or Solomon or Herod. Stop it. That's not the win. They don't get that, though. Uh, the people struggle with that. We struggle with it. And somewhere along the way, this congregation, as it looks to build, we're going to say what? It's got to be this way, because if it's not, it won't work. 
If God can make Beaver Creek cinemas function, he can really make anything function. It's awesome. I joke with other pastors. I hope you find this funny. I'm like, you know what? One of the neat things about a congregation that's looking to build has been in a theater for 10 years. They ask me questions like this. Can you do church outside of a theater? Like, how, how, does, how, does, that, how does that work? Now, 10 years ago, the same people said, I don't know, pastor. It's crazy. We're going to go with you. It's crazy. See, we get so used to what we know. They're so used to the, the sacrificial system, they can't see that God's doing something bigger. The text continues, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Then verse 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first. Now some of you, right after I read that, it was an extended reading from verse 11 to 15 in Hebrews 9. If you weren't lost before, some of you are like, gone. Too deep, too much, too much sacrificial language. I don't know where Christ fits. I heard mediator, I heard Jesus, and then blood. That's all I got. Well, that's why we're going to continue to unpack. And what's unique is Zechariah takes us back to remind us what's going on. Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. You see, the, the trap that we're in is we're trying to get out of the pit on our own. Think about that baptismal flood that is your life. And take that flood that is your baptism and start pouring the flood of your baptism into the waterless pit. Anyone notice what happens as I put more baptismal water into that pit? Now, trust me, you're going to have to trust the water on this. I realize people that don't swim aren't, aren't going to follow this illustration. But if you do know to swim, that baptismal water starts to raise you right up out of the pit. And you float and you ascend to the top. And before you know it, that pit is filled and you are walking on dry ground again. This is what God does for us as he frees us. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. The stronghold wasn't, look how deep I dug. I found diamonds in the bottom of this pit. The stronghold is, look, now that I'm on the surface, I can see all of God's creation and the joyous colors that are all around me. I've been living in a darkness in this pit, and I was so excited that I thought I'd found a diamond. <laughs> or I thought I'd found gold. I remember the first time as a kid when I was given a piece of fool's gold. I was like, fool's? It actually is gold. They must have made a mistake. I got the only real piece. This is my first thought as a kid. I now realize the owner very clearly had not given me gold because there were many, many, many pieces of fool's gold uh, in Silverton, Colorado, that they were offering to anyone who wanted. And I'm like, there must be a pretty big supply of this stuff uh, if they're just tossing it out like pebbles. Well, there is. But God's giving us something so much more. So before this drops back into other challenges, how many of you have dealt with, are dealing with, or wish someone that you know had dealt with preparing a last will and testament? Yeah, see, this is one of the tough things that's not fun about getting older. What you realize is these documents are very important, very important. And they're really important the moment after someone dies. Before they die, everyone says, I don't need one. I mean, what's the benefit? There's no benefit. It's all right. You know. I mean, we've had a conversation. We're good. 
Well, that's great that we're good, but the we're good becomes what do I do when the we of the conversation has deceased? So the Bible actually plays this out. And it plays it out in Hebrews. It's the verse that I jumped past, 16 and 17 of Hebrews 9. For where a will is involved, which is interesting, I hope you get this, the language of blood covenants, <laughs> I mean, I love this, that the Bible actually understood like some legal rules and different things. The Bible doesn't exist in a vacuum. For where there's a will involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. This is actually a pretty good thing. Because if they don't establish that the person's dead and they start giving away all the stuff that you were hoping to use, it's very awkward for you. I know you're laughing about it, but you realize, oh, yeah, I guess you do have to do that first. This is why they want to make sure there's a death certificate and have all things said. If not, you come home and somebody's like, honey, I love this house. And you go, who are you? Well, we, we bought your house. You died. I, just, I didn't die. Well, you want to establish that first. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death. Since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So what the writer of Hebrews is telling you, the last will and testament of Jesus Christ is that in his blood, you will be covered and set free. But you can't be set free. His will doesn't take effect unless he dies. Genesis 3.21 was a few animals that perished so that Adam and Eve could have clothes. But for you to return to God the Father, the atoning blood of Jesus that covers all sins past and present because he is not only just a human, he is God, had to take place. It had to be established. This is why when we get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will hear very clearly people speak about what? Jesus was most certainly what? Dead. I know none of you like it, but there's a reason why they jab that spear into Jesus' side. Because it shows you without any doubt Jesus was dead. Ask a medical doctor. It's fascinating for medical doctors to read the text of the gospel account of Jesus' death because they'll tell you the things happening in his body show you he was dead. And that's good news. But that's weird. How could death be good news because the prisoners in the waterless pit have become prisoners of hope but for you to have hope jesus had to die but in his death you also have died because that water that rose you up out of the pit is the same baptismal water that connected you to a death like his and to a life like his and as we continue now through malachi next week and make our way to the new testament I really hope that as a church we can kick a bad habit. Well, I don't want to read the Old Testament. There's nothing in there for me. There's everything in there for you. Because the promise of Christ, the promise of His coming, and the promise of His return resonates again and again. Thanks be to God for that gift. Amen. We're glad you've connected with us online and look forward to the opportunity to see you in person. On behalf of everyone at Jordan, we hope you will join us as we gather in worship of our Savior, Jesus Christ, every Sunday morning at 9.30 at Beaver Creek Cinemas in the peak of good living, Apex, North Carolina.